This is the Startup Guide to Growth. Scaling and growing a startup requires marketing, sales, product, talent strategy, and so much more. At Sapphire Ventures, we bring you actionable growth strategies that can help you scale your company with insights and stories from accomplished operators. Ready to grow your company? Then listen up. All opinions expressed by Sapphire and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. By way of introduction, my name is Elizabeth Patterson, and I'm a partner at Sapphire, where my team leads our human capital network. Our team here provides talent and strategic human capital support to Sapphire's portfolio companies who are rapidly scaling. My background is in venture capital, as well as go-to-market as an operator for high-growth startups, as well as iconic brands like Nike. Today, I'm particularly excited to be discussing the very relevant topic of driving equality through workplace and also culture with our esteemed guest, Barbie Brewer. There's been a fast and massive shift in workplace paradigms over the last 24 or so months that's been brought on by this global pandemic. Most, if not All organizations in the tech ecosystem have been really forced to quickly move to a a remote first model. And given those experiences, startups and companies of all sizes are exploring a new workplace model or models for the first time. And in parallel, there's been a a strong and renewed call for action for these organizations to also focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And so today, we're coming together with our guest to talk about driving equality through workplace and culture that is of the utmost relevance. And so we're thrilled to have the expertise of our guest, Barbie Brewer, on the podcast today. Barbie is going to opine on this important topic with us. Barbie is the Chief People Officer at M Particle. She's very outspoken on the topic of remote work. Since long before the pandemic, prior, Barbie was the chief culture officer at GitLab. GitLab's been well-known for a long time for being a remote-first tech company. Before the pandemic at GitLab, she focused on really fostering a strong employee support system and culture at GitLab. And then prior to that, Barbie was at Netflix, where she was a VP of talent. She worked with the product organization, engineering organization, business development, and then also digital supply chain organizations, managing teams that supported over 1,500 employees. She's held human capital and talent leadership roles. Thank you so much, Barbie, for joining us and welcome to our podcast. Great to be here. So I'd love just to start out by talking a little bit about remote versus hybrid and the kind of concept of remote friendly. 
you're an expert ambassador for remote work, and you have been since well before the pandemic, given your role at GitLab. I'm curious to understand really your perspectives, Barbie, on fully remote versus hybrid models. There are variations on remote versus hybrid, and you believe that this can be innovative and compelling and that it can impact culture in really positive ways. Can we talk about that? I think that all remote is less challenging than hybrid. I think that when you're in an all remote environment, everyone's on equal footing and everyone shows up on screen essentially, except for those times where you do get together as a company. But in a hybrid workplace, it puts a lot more pressure on the organization to do their best to avoid any increased bias based off of someone's in the office or not and the amount of quote FaceTime you're getting. I kind of cringe at the saying FaceTime because I think when I'm on a Zoom or a Google Meet or whatever technology you're using, I'm seeing your face. I'm seeing your eyes. I feel good about that. But it is true that human connection varies on being live in the room together or being on digital media together. So you do have to really stretch yourself as an organization to still realize the benefits of a remote workforce and the increased diversity and equality that you can get through that without then embedding more biased through the hybrid environment. And you also mentioned face-to-face and the kind of presence and how that factors in from a cultural perspective. Are you seeing organizations that are hybrid model or remote model that are changing the way that they measure employee success or value today? From a performance perspective, sometimes that live face-to-face or in-person presence, for lack of a better term, can factor into the way that organizations measure success. I'm just curious if you can answer this separately for the remote versus hybrid kinds of models. Have you seen changes in how organizations are approaching how they measure success for employees in these hybrid or remote first organizations? Yeah. So I think that any employer, whether they're completely in office, hybrid, remote, needs to value, do their best to try to objectively value performance based on results. And characteristics that are important to the culture of your company, of course. Now, with the all remote environment, you do see some technologies coming out that are supposedly help you figure out if someone is productive while they're working during the day. What I see in a hybrid environment is that the productivity of employees is actually greater on the days that they're working at home, especially when many companies are doing this hybrid of two days in the office or three days in the office. It makes the days in the office an event, something unusual, something that is a departure from their usual normal activity. And so when in the office, they're using a lot more of that time to socialize versus getting work done. I hate to say that in a way that socialization is a bad thing. (laughs) It's not a bad thing, but it does break up their concentration in a way that perhaps at home it doesn't. But there's so many complexities around that too. So I think as much as we can set expectations based on the work that needs to get done and be able to to measure and see whether or not that work was accomplished, it takes effort. It takes good management. It takes good leadership. I don't think a technology can solve it. I think it takes just very good leadership and management at the employee level 
to set those expectations and to gauge and set the context, engage the performance coming out of it. And again, try as hard as you can not to let the bias drive that objective opinion. And this is a concern regardless of the work format. We all let biases impact how we view people. It's just human nature. It doesn't make us bad people. And the remote and hybrid environment introduces a new one. Mm -hmm. So it's just another one we need to try to be conscious of as we're evaluating performance. Yeah, that's a great point. And actually, it speaks to the question I have for you a little bit down the line, but I'll skip there. You're also touching on it in terms of one of those biases that might be kind of the visibility for the underrepresented. There's been a fair bit that's been written about how one of those challenges faced by diverse or marginalized or underrepresented employee groups is being visible, listened to, or valued for their input or contributions. I'm curious if it's a contradiction. Does the fact that employees are remote mean the potential that this could increase? Or if that's the case, what steps should organizations take to help ensure that this isn't happening in their company's culture? Yeah, it is. It's a bit of a contradiction. You're right. Because in a remote environment, what you do is you get a much larger talent pool and you get the benefit of diversity in different geographies. You, you inherently get more diversity just by going to different geographies. GitLab's a perfect example. We had employees in over 60 different countries. That embeds so much diversity in that context, different cultures from different countries, from different languages, from different ethnicities. If you're talking about a more U.S.-based hiring type model, and you look at the stats about where underrepresented minorities or marginalized populations exist, there are geographic trends there as well, that if you can hire in those communities, you can get a lot more diversity. And I love that. I honestly believe that there is amazing talent everywhere, but there's not great opportunity everywhere. And remote work can give that opportunity to those marginalized groups and bring the opportunity to them instead of taking them out of their communities. Taking the best and the brightest out of their communities leaves the communities without the tax revenue that can help build and bolster that economy. It leaves those communities without the amazing role models that can help to show kids what's possible. So the remote world, I think, is great for diversity, inclusion, equality. I think it's amazing. And from a long-term perspective, I think it can move mountains. When you go to the hybrid environment, however, it's still great. But is there a double whammy? Not only am I an underrepresented minority, but I'm also the person not in the office. And so we really need to make sure we focus on really trying to be inclusive of all people who are working in different areas and may not be in the same time zone as you, may not be in the same office as you. And be really thoughtful and deliberate about making sure we include them and that we value them and that we listen to them. And that's a muscle that has to be built. I really think that the majority of the time that we get this wrong, it's not intentional. We don't see ourselves doing it. We would be offended if someone said we are. That righteous indentation is really believed internally for people. But it's about breaking out of that mind frame of, I know I'm not doing it and saying, what if I am? And what things can I do differently to make sure I stop? 
And that's, that's hard. There was a recent report that came out by McKinsey and also Lean In that found that one in four women are thinking about reducing or leaving the paid workforce as a result. And it could be given that they have a greater share of unpaid work. Also, you just mentioned that within the hybrid work model, there's some concern that if women end up taking on disproportionately being the ones that are working remotely, that return to office without a broader cultural shift, it could possibly lead to a two-tier workforce if it's hybrid. I'm curious specifically around gender. I'd like to talk about some other kinds of demographics as well that you're seeing specifically with a hybrid work setting. What are the right conditions specifically? And you being an expert, are there any best practices that you have put in place to ensure that there is gender diversity in a hybrid setting? So I do think that there's things that you can do. And I think a lot of that is the thoughtfulness around what is professionally acceptable in your organization. The come in the office two days a week idea is workable, but you now have two days a week where you have to figure out who's going to pick your kids up from school and who's going to take your kids to school because now you're doing a long commute. And so it's trying to figure those things out again. In terms of diversity, the one that I resonate most with is obviously gender because I'm a woman. And it is difficult to be on a plane to San Diego every other week and have to have that disrupt the routine of the family. It is less disruptive if my husband does that. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think that the partners that are returning to the workplace don't need to step up here too. And it's not all on the companies. It's also on your family dynamics to figure some of these things out as well. But companies need to be thoughtful around it's horrible. Your child came in and interrupted you during an important meeting and that's unacceptable and you're going to get dinged for that. Instead, welcome that child and not in a way to be hugely disruptive, but my kids have a rule. If they come into my office while I'm in a meeting, then my expectation is that they are going to just give a little wave to say hi. They don't have to talk, but give a little wave and leave. And that should be professionally acceptable in the workplace if you're letting people work at home. A lot of people talk about you get to know people better when you see them in the office because you get to have the water cooler talk and the water cooler conversation. The reality is, is we're still having those conversations with the people who sit next to us near that water cooler. By working remotely, you're bringing people into your home and you're bringing people into your life every day you get on a video call. So instead of making it the assumption that this is a bad thing that life happens, embrace it. Get to know their pets, their kids, their favorite houseplants. These things are okay. And you can help you get to know each other actually better. So I think companies can loosen up the rigor around professionalism, as it's put. Doesn't mean that what you wear on video doesn't matter or things like that. But (laughs) the life happening thing behind the scenes, embrace that as well. That can be your new water cooler talk. I think it's really interesting where I see leaders complaining about losing that social connection because you get on a Zoom and it's purposeful. And so you have a meeting, you start your meeting, you're in your meeting, and that small talk is removed that you used to get in the office when 
Some people had arrived to the room, but not all, or the walking in the hallways. You can still get great small talk when you're working remotely if you allow it and if you embrace it. And I think that for the women who are staying home or whoever's staying home, sometimes it's the man staying home, that they still feel included and embraced for where they are. I think companies can do a lot with setting the tone for that. So thinking about ways to ease that disruption, that's very based on the individual. It's not a one size fits all as you're relating to the workforce. It really is about each manager knowing what their employee needs to be the most productive and effective employee, and then allowing for what's necessary for them to be as productive as possible while also having a life. So I think that what you're saying here is really interesting in terms of enabling people to bring their best selves to work and not just the kind of professional only person that they may have brought to the office prior. I think it dovetails nicely into what we're seeing right now with this concept of the great resignation. Recently, there was some data that I saw that came out that indicated a high number, and I want to say it was 4.4 million people or almost 3% of workers had quit their job, according to the Labor Department's latest report. And there was reason to believe that the quitting would continue well into 2022. And there had been a lot that had been driving this. People were wanting to be at an organization where they felt they could bring their full selves to work and be part of an organization that respected that and welcomed that. I'm wondering from your standpoint, Barbie, how you see the great resignation and some of what you're saying how do you see it impacting some of the topics that that we're discussing today around what employees or companies can do in terms of setting the tone that will enable companies to be more competitive and more candidate or employee friendly as we go through this kind of unprecedented time does that question make sense? It does. It does. And it's and I, and I wish that I had the answer to it, but I have ideas. I have thoughts. So I do think that it's real. I do think it's affecting women more than men in the workforce. And, you know, there's times I feel it myself. What am I doing here? And the reality is, is that employers really need to think about what matters. Companies are running a business. They need to be successful. They need to think about the bottom line. But talent and people are what contribute to that bottom line. And so they really do need to think about what really truly drives their success. I see all the time, and I don't want to offend anyone when I say this, but you see these great entrepreneurs, the folks making the new technology, employing the people, they get a lot of their satisfaction from walking into a room and seeing all the people who work for them. They get a lot of satisfaction to the name of their company going on top of that building and it makes them feel successful. Is there a different way to feel successful? Is there a different way for our entrepreneurial leaders to value themselves 
other than the seeing a room full of people or seeing their name high in the sky. I'd be more than happy to, to buy a billboard for you <laughs> if that helps. But what are we really doing for our people that will make sure that they commit to the business and want to move it forward? Average tenure, I think, in tech companies and in our most successful tech companies is less than two years. So right now, people are not building their careers based off of one company. People are building their careers off of the experiences they're getting from multiple companies. Employers need to think about that too. Part of job changing isn't trying to keep people who shouldn't be there, but it is recognizing what employees are looking for. And the job security now no longer comes from working at the same company for two years. Job security comes from the growth in your career that you see sometimes by leaving companies. The great resignation piece, I don't know yet how that's going to turn out. People are leaving the workforce. Are they rejoining? And are we seeing those numbers yet? And if they are rejoining, what's different about the job they rejoined to versus the job they left? There's a lot, I think, of uh, we're going to learn over the next six to 12 months about this. And I'm eager to learn it. But essentially, if, if you're letting people know that they can keep their dream life and still have their dream job, I think most people want to feel productive. They want to feel like they have a purpose. So remote work doesn't mean working from the same house every day, but there's complications with that. What does that mean for taxing my employee? What does that mean for employment law if my employee's a nomad versus a I'm in this city every day? And so that's where you get more complex, but it doesn't mean it's not solvable. I think those are some really great points. I do want to touch on one thing that you said there around letting people know that their dream life can exist while thinking through the growth of their careers and their their dream jobs. And this can come through leaving their companies. I think that the more traditional model has always been that you want to retain your employees and that that's how you measure employee engagement too, to some extent. I'm thinking about what you just said in conjunction with what we've been reading around Gen Z and how they're moving through their careers. So as part of what you're saying in remote environments, you might be able to retain employees for longer if there's more flexibility. I think you said make employees feel like they're working in a vacation home. I love that. Or is it that we need to reframe from a cultural standpoint, having a tenure of two years is okay, a tour of duty, so to speak. I'm just kind of curious what you think that the shifts are that organizations can make in their own mindsets to accommodate this. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. You have to know the reality of what average tenure is. I also think you have to understand that this pandemic has changed people's own mindset about what work can be. Not everybody, you know, not everyone out there is lucky enough to have a job they can do at a computer, but wow, doesn't it decrease the commute for the people who don't have a job where they can be at the computer? I mean, a school teacher often in the Bay area can't live in the city they teach in, but if all those software engineers aren't on the road, they get to work a lot quicker. So you are impacting more than just the tech industry by embracing the remote work. In terms of the tenure thing, it's interesting because I get a lot of companies, you know, especially when I'm consulting with them or interviewing with them, well, how are you going to measure success? And they do want to look at tenure. 
I personally, as a leader, if I have someone quit on my team who is quitting because they're taking a great job at a higher level that I didn't have for them, but I had given them the experience and the exposure to be ready for it, that's a success to me. That's not a failure. Now, it is a failure if we did have that opportunity for them, we grew them and got them ready for it, and then we ignored them when it became available. That's a failure. We could probably put on our talent acquisition hats here and have a long conversation about what's happening. It's such a crazy, crazy kind of supply and demand, for lack of a better term, uh, misalignment in the talent market. It's really important for companies to keep open minds and exactly what you just mentioned. I want to touch on something you mentioned when you're consulting and this broader idea of data collection the more kind of tactical advice as you're advising and consulting with companies. I'm curious if attrition statistics aren't a number for entrepreneurs, founders, and HR leaders to familiarize themselves with. What type of data do you think is critical for organizations to collect and measure themselves against right now as they're building more remote and equitable workforces and work environments? What data do you think might not be all that important today? And perhaps what data do you believe will be important in the future, perhaps that we haven't even thought of? Well, I think that attrition is still a good data point to look at. I think you have to be careful with how you look at it versus voluntary and involuntary as, you know, involuntary is good because you got rid of a bad person and voluntary is bad because you lost a good person. A lot of times good leadership and good management means that you have more voluntary attrition because people know where they stand and they know they're not succeeding. So they find that new next opportunity and you've been doing good coaching. So you always have to look at the details, but I think looking at attrition, both voluntary and involuntary and comparing it against market and comparing it against like markets. If you're a remote company, is your attrition higher or lower than other remote companies? I know when I was at GitLab, no criticism for GitLab, that we looked at attrition, but we were the only remote company really, not only, but one of very few. So when we looked at attrition for the high-tech industry and we saw that ours was better and we patted ourselves on the back for that, that might not have been the right thing to do. It might have been, like you mentioned earlier, being remote leads to higher retention. And so the fact that we were beating a lot of the tech companies didn't mean we were a better place to work. It meant we were a place to work that was more conducive to their lifestyle. And maybe when a lot of companies started doing that, we'd see more attrition because we'd have more competition. Because again, we had the ability to hire in places that weren't hiring people for these jobs. Obviously, that affected an improved attrition. Now... I think that attrition is a lagging indicator. So I do think you have to know the workforce. You have to know how engaged they are. And there's lots of research about what questions to ask for that. But, you know, are they engaged in the workforce and do they still feel good in their life? I think a lot of the things that we ask in a lot of these employee engagement surveys, we have to be careful about. We shouldn't make them too long, but we need to check the pulse. I use a technology, it was called High Five. I'm not trying to sell any companies here. But every week, my employees could go in and they could just say, basically, how are you feeling today? And it was a one to five. And then they could put notes of how they're feeling. So if they said they were feeling a two, that didn't mean they were mad at me. That could mean that they're really struggling at home and they're frustrated and they feel like they're not doing well at work. 
but it was a great way for me as a leader to have that conversation with them and to say, hey, wow, you're feeling like a two this week. What's going on? How can I help? Right. And so managers keeping that pulse and organizations keeping that pulse and seeing the trends in those pulses of their organization, I think can be more of a leading indicator if you're doing it frequently enough, even if it's just one question. And then you can do your your bigger engagement surveys at the timing that's right for you, which can also be insightful to how are managers managing, how are people, are they getting good context, things like that. But just those little pulse checks, if your leaders are willing to follow up on those pulse checks, I think it can be helpful to the organization and it can also provide HR some meaningful data about how are people feeling. That's really interesting. Taking this conversation back to diversity, equality, and inclusion, and being able to take into account the differences between people and groups and placing a positive value on those differences. We talked a little bit earlier about the new remote or hybrid models and how organizations are increasing their diverse populations faster than they would have been if they were in in a traditional in-office model I'm curious to understand the types of measures you're seeing organizations take to not only get more diverse populations in the door, but then also positively value those differences. Are there specific things you've seen work really well? Also, your perspective. Do you think organizations are doing this well and are they moving quickly enough? Generally, I think there's definitely more that we can do. And I don't necessarily feel like we are doing it fast enough. It's interesting of what is necessary or what helps. I work with a lot of people across companies. And as a woman, do I want to be called out for being a woman or do I want to be just seen as a person? Some people do, some people don't. I like that I feel as a woman that people can respect some of my experiences and how they're different as a woman and what that might help me bring to the table. It feels good to know that's respected. I like that people know that I've had my own health journey with cancer. And when they are struggling with that same journey, they know I'm someone that they can talk to. So I think a lot of what it has to do with leaders is showing vulnerability, talking about your backgrounds, not being ashamed of them, If you had a homeless period in your life, then why not talk about that and let people be aware of how you struggled with that? If you came from a broken family and that was difficult for you, why not be honest about that? So I think there's a lot that we can do just ourselves to be ourselves and to open up that vulnerability to others to one, be more approachable, but two, help people feel like they can be honest as well. And they can say, I'm struggling. You know, the employee resource groups are great. I think it's wonderful to have them. I think it's important not to use them as a way to focus on differences so much that we're actually segregating ourselves instead of uniting ourselves. It doesn't mean that if you have a woman's group that every meeting men should be involved in. If the meeting's about struggling with how to continue nursing while you return to the workplace, that probably is better for it to be a a group of women. But there's a lot of those meetings that it'd be great for the men to be there there. You need allies. And they might learn something too. So I think that when you have those employee resources groups, celebrate them, but also make sure that you're being inclusive and that those groups are also being inclusive. I think that's important. I think there has been a lot of focus on differences. And I love it when we focus more on 
the similarities, what we have in common or what our differences together can help us solve and how we can actually seek to understand each other more. It's very insightful and helpful, helpful for those organizations that might be too small and have an employee resource group and different ways they can approach this as well. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think when you talk to people, you figure out how much you have in common that you don't see when you just look at them. I also liked your point, Barbie, around leadership. These new workforce paradigms require really strong management and good leadership who is open to showing vulnerability and figuring different ways to feel successful. Thanks so much for taking time today, Barbie. There are several themes that we can walk away from after today's podcast. The remote versus hybrid model has its differences, its nuances, and in many ways, the remote model is is less challenging than the hybrid model. Secondarily, I liked what you said about leadership needing to be more deliberate regarding remote workforces, that they should connect with their organizations and also show strong management and, and leadership that in many cases is vulnerable. And then the third point, being cognizant of tracking not only the lagging indicators of employee engagement, but also the leading ones around checking in with that full person. So thank you, Barbie, for joining us. We appreciate it. I know many entrepreneurs and leaders that are listening to this podcast will impose your strategies from today. 